Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor, Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about workup for postmenopausal bleeding in women and endometrial cancer. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and you can find me on Twitter at KateMerriweather1. Today on the Beyond the Pearls podcast, we're going to be talking about a 58-year-old woman with postmenopausal bleeding. For those of you following along in the book, this is case 54 on page 361 of the Beyond the Pearls Obstetrics and Gynecology. This case was written by Dr. Summer K. Wallace, who is at the assistant professor at the Division of Gynecologic Oncology at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, Wisconsin. So let's go to our patient. This patient is a 58-year-old woman who presents to your gynecologic clinic for evaluation of vaginal spotting. She first noticed blood in her tissue uh, when she was wiping about four months ago, with at least one episode of spotting each month since that time. She reports that her last menstrual period was approximately five years ago. So a clinical pearl, a woman is defined as menopausal after 12 full months without menses. The average age of menopause in the United States is about 51 years. So what can cause postmenopausal bleeding? The differential diagnosis for postmenopausal bleeding includes atrophic endometrium, cervical or endometrial polyps, endometrial hyperplasia, endometrial cancer, and vaginal atrophy, now referred to as genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or GSM. The source of bleeding must be identified and distinguished from a urinary tract or rectal gastrointestinal source. Although the most common cause of vaginal bleeding in postmenopausal women is genital atrophy, or GSM, which is vaginal and or endometrial, from lack of estrogen hormones, these patients might have endometrial cancer, and that needs to be ruled out. With what symptoms does a patient with endometrial cancer usually present? The most common presenting sign is endometrial hyperplasia or cancer is vaginal bleeding. In a premenopausal woman, this may present as heavy or irregular menstrual bleeding or both. And the differential diagnosis of abnormal uterine bleeding in these premenopausal women is very broad. In the postmenopausal women, vaginal bleeding is the most common symptom of endometrial cancer or hyperplasia. Any type of vaginal bleeding in the postmenopausal population has to raise suspicion for endometrial cancer. So what are some risk factors for endometrial cancer? They include age, obesity, unopposed estrogen use, early menarche, late menopause, nulliparity, meaning never having been pregnant or given birth, hypertension, diabetes, history of abnormal bleeding or anovulation, which includes polycystic ovarian syndrome. Also, a family history of uterine or colon cancer, including hereditary syndromes or a former diagnosis of endometrial hyperplasia in your patient, should raise your suspicion. 
Endometrial hyperplasia is an abnormal overgrowth of the glands of the endometrium, the lining of the uterus, that is a precursor to endometrial cancer. Hyperplasia is categorized as simple hyperplasia, simple hyperplasia with atypia, complex hyperplasia, and complex hyperplasia with atypia, with hysterectomy recommended as the preferred method for this complex hyperplasia with atypia due to the high risk for malignancy. Due to recent changes in the terminology, we're now referring to some of this as endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, or EIN. When you're evaluating a patient with postmenopausal bleeding, like this patient, it's important to ask them about these risk factors. So a basic science clinical pearl for steps one, two, and three. Lynch syndrome is a hereditary syndrome that increases the risk of endometrial cancer. It also increases the risk of cancer such as colon, urinary tract, and the ovary, among others. Lynch syndrome is an autosomal dominant mutation. It is a mutation of mismatch repair genes, specifically MSH2, MSH6, MLH1, and PMS2. So let's go back to our patient for a minute. You investigate the patient's risk factors associated with endometrial cancer. She does not have any pain associated with the bleeding or other symptoms. She has a history of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and type 2 diabetes. There's no history of cancer in the patient's family. On physical exam, her body mass index, or BMI, is 34.5 kg per meter squared. So she would be categorized as obese. How do you classify endometrial cancer specifically? There are two types of endometrial cancer. There's type 1 and type 2. Type 1 cancers are diagnosed at an earlier stage when they're less advanced and have endometrioid histology. These cancers are associated with unopposed exposure to estrogen, meaning that the patient has higher level than normal of circulating estrogens without a corresponding elevation in serum progestins at the same time. Women with obesity, such as this patient, are at increased risk for type 1 endometrial cancer. Type 2 cancers are not related to estrogen exposure and typically have higher risk histologies. These include serous carcinosarcoma or clear cell carcinoma of the endometrium. Basic science pearl for step one. Obese women are at higher risk for endometrial cancer because adipose tissue contains aromatase. Aromatase converts androstenedienes to estrone, so androstenedienes to estrone, creating an environment of unopposed estrogen that promotes that endometrial proliferation. Let's do another basic science pearl about histology. So endometrioid histology and endometrial cancer means that malignant cells are formed from the endometrial glands. There's an overgrowth or, quote, crowding of glands on microscopy. Endometrioid histology is actually graded according to the ratio of glands to solid components. So grade 1 is less than 5% ratio, grade 2 is 5 to 50% ratio, and grade 3 is greater than 50% ratio. Cellular and nuclear atypia, such as enlarged nuclei of the cells, increasing mitotic figures, prominent nucleoli, also play a role in that grading. Abnormal features can kind of upgrade a cancer. Grade 1 and grade 2 endometrial cancers are considered low-grade, whereas grade 3 endometrioid endometrial cancers are in all non-endometrioid histologies, so the serous, the carcinosarcoma, the clear cell, they're all considered high-grade. So only endometrioid endometrial cancers can even have the grade one and two. If you've got a non-endometrioid, it has to be grade three. Going back to our patient, we do a physical exam. It's notable for her elevated BMI and her vital signs are normal. 
On physical exam, there's a small amount of blood in her vaginal vault on the speculum exam, and the remainder of the physical exam is unremarkable. The patient consents to an in-office endometrial biopsy, which reveals an endometrial carcinoma of the endometrioid type. A little side clinical note, uh, anecdotally from me, when you're doing a speculum exam in a woman with postmenopausal bleeding, always look for lesions or ulcerations in the external genitalia, that includes the anus and the anal verge, and look for ulcerations along the vaginal walls. You're looking for other potential sources of bleeding, right? So if everything else is epithelially intact, you're assuming that blood is coming from above, from the endometrium. So what's the initial evaluation of endometrial cancer now that we've diagnosed it with pathology in this patient? The initial evaluation of the endometrium can be performed from a pelvic ultrasound, an endometrial biopsy like we did in this patient, and dilation and curatage, which can be done under anesthesia. The endometrial thickness of a postmenopausal woman should be about four millimeters or less. Biopsy should be performed in any woman with the following characteristics. Persistent abnormal uterine bleeding with unopposed uterine estrogen, age older than 45, abnormal uterine bleeding, or postmenopausal bleeding. So keep in mind that if you have a woman older than age 45 but not yet postmenopausal, if she's got abnormal uterine bleeding, you should evaluate her endometrium. Clinical pearl, steps two and three. Note that endometrial cancer, like other types of gynecologic cancer, is staged after the patient has had removal of relevant tissues in a surgery. This, however, is unlike cervical cancer, where the cancer is staged by a clinical exam only. So, what test should we order for this patient for evaluation of endometrial cancer and pre-surgical planning in her? Prior to surgery, basic lab tests are obtained. These labs include complete blood count and electrolyte panel with creatinine. In addition, in patients with diabetes, like this one, glucose and hemoglobin A1c should be recorded. Further medical evaluation of a patient's comorbidities can be performed as needed, such as an electrocardiogram in patients that have a cardiac history. A chest x-ray is performed to investigate for pulmonary pathology or metastatic disease. Other imaging, like a CT scan, may be performed in patients with high-risk endometrial cancer. So we're talking about those grade 3 or non-endometrioid types especially if they have concerning symptoms on physical exam findings. Like they have swollen lymph nodes, they have pulmonary symptoms, they have physical wasting, you're concerned for metastases or other uh, comorbidities causing uh, health problems. So what's the treatment for endometrial cancer? The definitive treatment, of course, is surgery. That would usually include a total hysterectomy, bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, removing the fallopian tubes and ovaries, and possible lymph node evaluation. Pelvic lymphadenectomy may be performed depending on the characteristics of the patient's tumor, and you include their size, depth of invasion into the endometrium or the myometrium, histology of the cancer, and the grade. In high-risk cancers, periaortic lymphadenectomy might need to be performed. This type of surgery can be performed using a minimally invasive technique, such as a laparoscopic or robotic-assisted laparoscopic approach. That's the most common type used in current practice. Final stage is determined based on surgical pathology. So let's talk a little bit about the staging. Remember, we're staging it after the surgery and relevant tissues have been removed. So stage one is confined to the uterus, and that's divided into A and B. 
In stage 1A, the tumor invades less than 50% into the myometrium, the muscular wall of the uterus. In stage 1B, the tumor invades greater than or equal to 50% into the myometrium. Stage 2, the tumor is actually going to invade the cervical stroma. So not just in the endometrial components of the uterus, like the fundus in the body, but into the cervix. Stage three, the tumor is going to involve some regional structures in the pelvis, and that's divided into A, B, C1, and C2. 3A is the tumor is involving the uterine serosa or agnexa. 3B, the tumor is going, going to involve the vagina or the parametrium, so the tissues and ligaments surrounding the sides of the uterus. 3C1, tumor involves the pelvic lymph nodes, and 3C2, the tumor is going to involve the periaortic lymph nodes. Stage four, there we have distant metastases. So stage 4A is it's involving the bladder or the rectal mucosa, so the accompanying pelvic organs. Stage 4B, you've got distant disease, including inguinal lymph nodes and abdominal spread, and that can include abdominal or pelvic metastases. So let's go back to our patient for a minute. The patient undergoes a robotic-assisted laparoscopic hysterectomy with bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy and bilateral pelvic lymphadenectomy. Her uterus demonstrates endometrioid carcinoma invading less than half of the thickness of the myometrium, the fallopian tubes, ovaries, cervix, and bilateral pelvic lymph nodes, which were sampled in her case. They were negative for carcinoma. Based on this, she's diagnosed with stage 1A, endometrioid endometrial carcinoma. That means that she had the tumor, it was invaded the less than 50% of the myometrium, and it was confined to the uterus. So let's say that the patient couldn't undergo surgery. What would be her alternatives? If she has too many medical comorbidities to undergo surgery and wishes to preserve her childbearing ability and or wishes to preserve her childbearing ability, medical management of endometrial cancer is an option for certain patients. Hyperplasia and grade one endometrial cancer or EIN can be treated with progestin therapy administered orally by injection, or with an intrauterine device that secretes progestins. Prior to committing to medical management of endometrial cancer, deeply invasive disease has to be ruled out, and usually you'll want to do some pelvic imaging with an MRI, magnetic resonance imaging. After progesterone therapy is started, an endometrial biopsy needs to be performed every three months to assess for response to treatment and make sure that we're not advancing in grade or have a different pathology. So does this particular patient that we've just diagnosed post-surgery with 1A endometrioid endometrial cancer need additional treatment? Adjuvant chemotherapy and radiation is recommended in the more advanced stages and with more concerning histology. So we're talking about the clear cell, the serous, the carcinosarcomas. Risk factors for occurrence include lymphovascular space invasion, or LVSI, myometrial invasion, and higher tumor grade. Patients with these risk factors often receive additional postoperative treatment with adjuvant chemotherapy or radiation. Radiation is most often given as vaginal brachytherapy or localized radiation alone, but some cases will also have external pelvic radiation. Chemotherapy is reserved for patients with high-grade histology or metastatic disease to other organs. This patient had a low-grade, low-risk carcinoma, the most common presentation for endometrial cancer because we often catch it early. And therefore, she does not require additional treatment, fortunately. A little clinical pearl. The two most commonly used chemotherapy medications for endometrial cancer are paclitaxel and carboplatin. So going back to our patient, you counsel her she does not require any more treatment at this time, and she's quite relieved to hear this. 
However, she's worried about the cancer, quote, coming back again and wants to know what she can do to prevent this. So how common is recurrence and what can be done if the cancer returns? Although endometrial cancer recurrence is rare, most commonly occurs at the vaginal cuff and is usually detected within the first three years following diagnosis. Recurrent endometrial cancer can be treated with radiation, both vaginal brachytherapy and pelvic external beam, or surgery followed by adjuvant radiation and chemotherapy. Remember that we're using the term adjuvant as something that we do post-surgery. In addition to surgery and radiation, hormonal therapy like progestins or selective estrogen response modulators or SERMs can be considered. So what does the patient do next? The patient needs to undergo some surveillance. Surveillance includes monitoring for occurrence with symptoms and a physical exam. So she would have a pelvic exam and discussion with a physician every three to six months for two years, and then approximately every six months for three years. The way I kind of remember this in my head is it's every three months for two years, and then twice a year for three. So it's Q3 for two, and twice a year for three. Three for two, two for three. Beyond the pearls, a rare tumor of the uterus, carcinosarcoma, it's sometimes called malignant mixed mullerian tumor or MMMT. It's considered one of the more aggressive and dangerous cancer types of the uterus. The five-year survival rate, even if you catch it in stage one confined to the uterus, is as low as 50%. Carcinosarcoma is named because the cancer includes different types of cell lines, epithelial cells, a carcinoma, and cancerous connective tissue cells, a sarcoma. However, it's now known that these are epithelial in origin. So even though the tissues look like connective tissue cells, they originally came from the epithelium. Women with carcinosarcoma often present with these large necrotic and friable tumors. This non-viable tissue may cause a severe pelvic infection. There's a lot of necrosis, odor, purulence, unfortunately. The treatment is surgical resection staging and possible treatment of a chemotherapy regimen. So again, we're continuing our Beyond the Pearls. Emerging studies for the evaluation of lymph nodes in endometrial cancer have led to the idea of performing sentinel lymph node excision. That would be done by injecting fluorescent dye into the cervix and following the lymph channels to the sentinel lymph node, or the first lymph nodes that would be reached by the cancer. And the pelvic lymph node group on each side of the body is sampled. Endometrial cancer patients do fortunately benefit from risk stratification, meaning that clinician uses certain characteristics of the patient and the cancer itself to determine what treatment or surveillance they need based on their risk of the cancer advancing or returning after treatment. These studies use age and tumor characteristics like the depth of invasion, the cervical stromal invasion, the tumor grade, the histology, and the LVSI, lymphovascular space invasion. Stratification is into three categories, low risk, intermediate risk, and high risk. There's also a subcategory of intermediate risk called high intermediate risk. So they can stratify whether or not the patient would merit adjuvant therapy, for example. Let's do a case summary. A 58-year-old woman presented to us who had been menopausal for five years, and she had new onset of vaginal bleeding. She had a normal physical exam, except for an elevated BMI consistent with class 1 obesity, and a slight amount of blood in the vaginal vault. We were concerned for this patient's risk of endometrial cancer, so we performed an office biopsy of her endometrium, and the pathology confirmed the diagnosis of endometrial cancer, specifically the endometrioid type. The patient underwent robotic hysterectomy, bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy, and sampling of pelvic lymph nodes. Her final diagnosis based on the pathology was stage 1A endometrioid endometrial cancer. 
After the surgery, the patient did not have risk factors that qualified her for further treatment, but she was advised to continue surveillance for gynecologic exams every three to six months for two years and every six months for the following three years. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.